You Week of the 2019-2020 NBA season in the books. I'm Sean Silver from 98.5 The Sports Hub. This is the Knuckle Push-Ups Podcast. And as always, I am joined by my friend, the enthusiast, Mr. Patrick O'Connor. Sean, great to be with you here this evening. Happy Halloween to you and yours. Happy Halloween to you and yours as well. Did you enjoy the festivities? What's not to love? Just a balmy, warm night in Massachusetts with uh, the mist on my skin and little kids in my yard. That sounds terrible. <laughs> yes, it was fun. <laughs> no, leave yeah. it in. I earned that. <laughs> uh, we meet again. I guess uh, last week we kicked everything off, just kind of getting to some NBA subplots. This week, I think it's it's time to be a little more reactionary. And, and yeah, we'll uncover a subplot or two along the way. But I think... One week into the NBA season, teams have three or four games under their belt. It's a good time to overreact to some stuff. The podcast medium, I'm pretty sure, was invented for overreactions and backtracking. So I'm ready to do step one and overreact to to some of the teams. I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on, as a League Pass subscriber, who's really standing out to you? What highlights really popped? What a condensed view really made you think about changing fandoms or who just to add to the rotation. So I got my list. I'm ready to go. All right, let's get into it. You want to lead this thing off? I have been mega impressed with the Dallas Mavericks. Ooh. I can't get enough, man. I think they are a really interesting team. They're just straight up fun to watch. And I think what is making it so much fun to be like a pseudo Mavs fan is that the expectations for that team were pretty low heading into the season. Kristaps mm-hmm. Porzingis has not played meaningful basketball in almost two years. Uh, Luka Doncic was, uh, I think he's always been heralded as a really fun player to watch, but Dallas was not necessarily a great situation. Last year, his rookie year was really overshadowed by Doncic versus Trey Young and who was really truly, who won the trade. Yeah. On draft night, um, the emergence, like we got stint number two of Seth Curry with Dallas, who's making it look like he's, you know, earning his stripes as one of the premier three-point shooters in the NBA, statistically speaking anyway. And my main man, Maxi Kleber, looking like a sleeper pick, just coming through. That team's just incredibly fun to watch. I, uh, I'm not ready to drop the green to pick up the blue, but they're very high on my league pass rankings right now. Yeah, it's it's a scintillating combination of those two big, long, gifted Euros, you know, who have just so many different abilities. The question there was always going to be the supporting cast. And, and that's kind of the, you know, it's a hallmark of a league pass team is is the supporting cast. You you kind of unearth the hidden gems. You get a guy who you're going to stand for, like a Maxi Cleaver, you know, who kind of comes out of nowhere and, and whenever the league pass shows that the Mavs are scheduled for that evening, gives you a little bit of excitement. I'm going to dip into a, a team that I kind of consider a front runner, and it's a team that's really growing up this year, and it's the Utah Jazz. And I mentioned them last week. Uh, so far, you know, the recipe is cooking, I think, just the way that they want it to. Mike Conley didn't really stand out in some of the team's first few games. Uh, but he had 29 points on Wednesday and a win. 
And and that's the kind of thing where, you know, I, I've long admired Donovan Mitchell. He maybe didn't have the season last year uh, that people were hoping from him, but he's a talented cat. And then you surround him. The team just kind of, they went from being maybe the sort of team that, you know, you like as a league pass team, but they're not really capable of much more. And now this is a team that I think is seriously expected to contend. They have, they have a real fine starting five, and uh, they're finding their groove there. So they've started the season four and one as we record this on Halloween night. So I'm looking out for the Jazz. It might be their best team they've had since the Boozer D-Will years. I really like that take a lot. I think the, the whole idea of the Jazz being a grown-up basketball team is a really, really good one, Sean. That's a very good call. Not a super uh, th- team, but, they're, but yeah, they're, they're kind of that old school. Exactly. Kind of yeah. old school approach. They remind me a lot, at least in, in theory, like a, like a San Antonio Spurs type of thing, right. team. When you think of the Spurs, you just think of professional basketball. I don't always think of like flashy dress on the bench. I think of guys showing up to work in khakis and polo shirts tucked in, stepping off the, uh, off the bus. And it's just they just strike me as like um, not necessarily like a lunch pail, grit and grind type of team that's just going to battle them out, but a professional basketball team. Well, Salt Lake City, you better have your shirt tucked in. So, Oh, yeah, exactly. No reason to untuck it. It's completely dry there. But I think they, the idea that they're just a grown-up team of professionals, they hired people to do specific jobs, it's a, it's a stark contrast to a lot of what we think about as a hallmark of success in the NBA, which might be a different, a different podcast for a different day. But that type of idea of, like, can a professional team – beat a superstar team, I think is a really good conversation. I think if we look back through the annals of history, even recent history for who's won the NBA title, more often than not, I think the team that's exhibiting a lot more kind of team unity, team like this is the vibe we want to put out there, like professional status, this is who we are, winds up doing pretty well. Yeah, it worked for those Spurs teams. It worked for that Pistons team when they beat a Lakers team that was just top-heavy with Shaq and Kobe back in 2004. I mean, there's, there's, you know, the 2008 Celtics were a great blueprint of that. That was a, a professional team that knew what it wanted, knew where everybody stood, and, you know, they romped over teams that maybe had players that were at the apex of their success, like, you know, LeBron's Cavaliers that year. The Celtics just had more firepower and better organization. Yeah, exactly. A big difference between a superstar team. Superstars pop champagne. Professionals like yourself have a drink after dinner. Just a nice smooth scotch that's smooth from first sip to last sip. I wouldn't say the same. You don't pop a bottle of whiskey. You know what I mean? You pop a <laughs> bottle of champagne. And when I think of like really superstar-led teams, that's more of the vibe. Like big explosions that you have to dig yourself out of a hole in order to kind of compete with. Professional teams... They attack you like a Jason Voorhees or a Michael Myers, just a steady street, step down the street. The, uh, the final girl is running for her life and just plod, 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 plod down the street. And somehow the bad guy is always there in the end. Granted, they usually lose in the end, but you get what I'm saying, John. Yes, just gentle machete strokes until That's right. eventual death. <laughs> That's right. My second overreaction that I want to dip into, not necessarily a good overreaction, I'm I'm a little uh, I want to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers. Okay. I think last night as of this recording so on Wednesday night, October 30th, Cat and Embiid got into a scrap. Indeed. 
and it was uh, really something that it's it, it made it to. I was watching the Celtics game. It made it to the halftime live preview, and they were like, oh, this huge, massive brawl broke out. And it was pretty. I mean, I watched it. It was interesting. I got to think. Um, I, I can't imagine uh, that's going to be the last time we we hear about Embiid and Carl Anthony Towns like kind of being at each other's throats. Well, um, yeah, it's it's rare that you have two players of that caliber that play yeah. the same position that are going at it like that. But you just you just don't see it. It's usually an instigator type, you know, and maybe they get under the skin of a superstar. Right. Yeah, it's usually not the two, you know, faces of the franchise battling like two titans. But I do think that that type of stuff, if that keeps happening, that's going to be the the crack on the armor for the Sixers this year. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, Ben Simmons was quick to jump on Carl Anthony Towns' back, got him in a nice little rear naked choke, (laughs) trying to get the big cat to tap out. That was interesting. That was very interesting. Yeah. And you had guys like Jeff Teague that were just trying to calm the situation down. At least, well, they weren't throwing punches at Embiid, but trying to usher him off the floor. But you had Mike Scott on the bench really chirping at Joel, like kind of, you know, egging him on for doing this. And then Joel's reaction to it was just thought it was pretty comical, like really kind of getting the crowd whooped up into it. That's the type of stuff, though, that can really come when it really matters. Playing chippy like that, that can cost you a lot more in games that truly matter. Not necessarily game four at home, but I saw a great aerial shot of it today of like a huge scrum on the floor, and the one guy sitting back was Al Horford. Yeah, just like kind of like, what are we doing here? I and was going to mention that. Yeah, the kind yeah. of player JoJo is. I mean, he's unbelievably talented. I think he's playing with. Uh, I don't know how long he can keep this up. You know, this type of attitude, this type of player, even how long his body is going to last, playing as physical as he does. And uh, I just think that that's the type of stuff that comes back to bite you. So I'm a little tentative and a little worked up about the Sixers. I'm going to be really mad if they're the team that comes out of the East and they're able to dodge all the all the hallmarks of a team that should be on track for implosion. It's uh, you just got you you injected Jimmy Butler into the Philly process last mm-hmm. year, even for only half a season. Now you got a whole team with Jimmy Butler DNA floating around in it. And uh, this is something I would see more out of. Uh, I would think would come out of Butler as opposed to um, as as opposed out of JoJo. But yeah, it was really interesting, and I, I don't think that's the last time we're going to see stuff like that happen. Well, you talk about professional teams, and and yeah, the Sixers. I guess they have the elements of being one. You know, you have guys who have superstar credentials. You have guys who've had success elsewhere. Um, you have guys who are kind of growing into their skin as as NBA players. You have a real depth and, and probably the deepest team in the East and has the potential to, if they did have that one bad day that we talked about last week, they might right. be able to keep floating. But the more that this stuff kind of goes on, I mean, Joel Embiid, like, are you the MVP candidate that you say that you are? Or are you just going to be doing this trife shit all the time? You know, right. Brett, Brett Brown as a coach, uh, is, is he the leader of men that they really want? Or is he just letting, you know, the, the top guys there do what they want to do? Kind of like, you know, kind of like the young bucks just running their own organization. Yeah, I mean, exactly. is that, is that really, uh, is that really what, uh, you know, what they're looking for in Philly? Are they looking for something that's just more stable, more professional? They have the artillery there to make a run at the title, but will they actually be able to do that? I think that's the thing about artillery, though, right? It's all it's all combustible elements, mm-hmm. and I think that's what they've got there in Philly. I mean, this is the year. I can't imagine 
this is the year that like JoJo and Ben Simmons would be like kind of jockeying for a position of whose team it is. Yeah. Like this is a team where like the East is good, but not great. Not on the left. Philly is by far the best team in the East as of right now. Sure. But I also think that if they're going that fast, they're also the type of car that could just start once they hit 120 miles an hour, the, the wheels could completely come off. And that's what Philly looks like to me. Like that, they could be really, really good. I don't think they'll make too many changes. I don't think they'll make too many tweaks just because they have all the right elements in place. But I don't know if they're a team playing this way and this kind of unfocused, just chaotic style of basketball is going to last them throughout the season. Yeah, or throughout an era necessarily. I mean, exactly. We may be seeing the uh, dynasties, you know, of the NBA kind of crumble, and and we'll get to the Warriors, but. You know, it kind of makes you wonder with the short-term contracts and and the the amount of player freedom. If uh, you know Philly is set up to have a five-year or more run right here, but it kind of makes you wonder: Are they even going to be able to be capable of that? I kind of want to switch it up a little bit and head out west. And you know, one of the things about League Pass with me, at least in my early days of having it, and you know, shout out to my pops for uh, you know wanting to wanting to get that product into the Silver household. I you know I always loved like watching when I was younger, um, watching the you know the ESPN West Coast games, the Sonics back when they had a team, Portland, you know different style, different vibe. You're up late at night, you're seeing players that you don't often see, and I still kind of have that now. Except the fact is I can't stay up late at night because I'm just old, and I got to get up early in the morning. So. If I'm watching the league pass, I'm watching a replay of a previous night's game. And last year, I found myself more often than not on Sacramento Kings games. They were intriguing to me. They've started out the season 0-5. and Yeah. And it's just sad when, you know, you, you have – that's your league pass team. They were showing something. And then the offseason, they got done the stuff they had to get done. They brought back Buddy Heald. Uh, Willie Cauley-Stein left, but you thought, okay, they got enough young bigs that they should be able to weather that storm. Let's see what Bagley has or whatever. Well, Bagley's hurt. Um, some of their guys haven't had the development that you really want to see. And here's a team that, you know, if they don't turn it around quick, not only are they not going to be a league pass favorite, but uh, you might be seeing some moves happening in Sacramento, which is a fragile basketball market to begin with. The parallels are always fun to examine, aren't they? It's last season, I feel like Atlanta and Sacramento were on a similar trajectory. Yeah. Like a team not expected to be good, but just fun to watch. Like Fun to watch. Roll the ball out, let the kids play. And then uh, you want to see in that next year, you want to see them make some sort of step. Maybe not necessarily even playoffs, but just, again, showing more of that professionalism, showing right. that. It's less of roll the ball out and more of let's take care of our job. Right. And also, like, you want to build on momentum. I mean, the teams that are doing it right, quote unquote, often it doesn't look like it's the right thing to do until it automatically clicks. Uh, I would like to stop talking about the Sixers, but they're a really good example of really kind of like looking at what combustible elements we can combine together and get rid of the ones that just don't fit or just don't follow the same trajectory. And that would like trust the process is a really good methodology, whether you're a Philly fan or not, for watching a basketball team grow. And if you're not taking those steps, I'm not looking for a championship in Northern California in year number two. But let's see if we can build on just the fun atmosphere that we had 
last season. I don't know if maybe Luke Walton's not the coach, or maybe like those are not any of his picks, so they're just not uh, working in the system that that he wants it to. It's hard also to like kind of recapture the magic, right? It's uh, he's not a, like he learned a lot from from Steve Kerr and Steve Kerr's coaching staff, and had kind of uh, tried to duplicate that in L.A. and got kind of LeBron out of town. And now trying to do it, he's got the ball back in his court trying to do it in Sacramento, and maybe it's just going to take a little while longer than we'd like. But, yeah, they're kind of a, it's kind of a letdown to try to go back to the well of a team that was fun that's just not as fun anymore. Yeah, uh, it's, it was interesting to me how you know, confident they were in the selection of Walton as the coach. It kind of made you think, like, well, what does he really have on his resume that makes you think that he's automatically a great fit? And it just kind of goes along with the Kings in general. Whenever the Kings make these you know, wild draft selections or free agent heaves or trades, it's just kind of like, man, the Kings are just really confident in themselves, even if the rest of the NBA world kind of ridicules them. And it was fun yeah. to see them turn that corner from the ridiculed team to, oh, shit, maybe they got something here now. When they roll out those powder blue jerseys with the lion on it, I'm all for it. <laughs> rocking that, the Premier League jersey, I'm way into it. I'm like, ooh, this is the team. Well, maybe still a reason to watch then. Well, my question is, who's the leader of the Sacramento Kings? Gut reaction. Who's the first name that comes to mind for you? De'Aaron Fox. Okay. Shouldn't it be Harrison Barnes? Uh, I don't know. Shouldn't it be Buddy Heald? Well, I feel like the thing is with Barnes and Heald, right? I mean, Barnes is an older player at this point in his career. I'm not sure what his actual age is, but he's definitely in, what, his sixth or seventh season in the NBA. And, you know, there's a guy who... He's just never really gotten past being what he is. You know, he, he's getting paid nicely by them. I think, he, I think he's getting 85 mil from the Kings uh, over four years. But at the same time, it's just kind of like you never really ascended to that superstar status. And Buddy Heald, the unfortunate thing with him is, you know, he may be kind of on the brink of superstar status just by his pure numbers. But he was a first-round pick who was older and it's kind of like he was never thought of a, this guy's going to be our franchise by either of the teams that he played for coming into the league. Again, paid nicely by the Kings, but not paid like a franchise player. I feel like Fox is that guy. And therein lies the problem. No example to follow, really. I mean, yeah. granted, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to come across like I'm bashing any team, but like just looking at this from. Oh, go organ- ahead. An organizational, I kind of, hey man, MB, I'm an NBA atheist. I don't believe in any one team over the other. Okay? Yeah, all right. <laughs> I got to keep my go. brand strong. I'm an enthusiast and an, I'm an NBA atheist. <laughs> That's another whole pod topic where I define exactly what that is. So I think the the most important thing when looking at any organizational structure at all is who is at the top, who's at the front of the pyramid, who's out in front, whose example are we following? Every successful team, organization, or whatever, there's a clear message that's set by a specific leader that and is like these are these are the patterns we're looking and habits we're looking to follow and continue. I don't know who that is for the Kings. I'm not sure that the Kings do either. Right. So I'm not super surprised they're off to a slow start. Like you but teams can turn it around. I mean we're at this point, three weeks into the season, last season we were looking at the Rockets like, oh, my God, they've blown up on the launch pad. Like this, is going, this experiment's going to fail in year two of the Chris Paul mega deal. Nice space station analogy there. Yeah. So it's like what, what is going to happen here? And they, they turned around like almost instantly after that and were 
like contending like we all knew that they would. And James Harden had it as soon as Chris Paul went down, James Harden really pulled the like, you know, just put the team on his back and and let him forward. But that's the example of like this is the person who's setting the tone that we're following this guy. Yeah. And until a team has that, you got nothing. Well, the Golden State Warriors they good, didn't really good segue, bud. Sorry. <laughs> they, well, they kind of grew organically and I mean they had David Lee a veteran presence for them they had uh, Mark Jackson as a coach at first and they're like "Uh, maybe you're not the guy Mark Jackson but they kind of grew all at the same time they kind of grew up together into this successful team it wound up being that Steph Curry was the guy that you know every it was everybody's job to kind of emulate and everybody carved out their own thing I mean Draymond Green obviously doesn't emulate Steph Curry on or off the court, he's you know he's got his own outspoken way of going about things, and just as as big of a personality in the way that he can conducts himself in between the lines. Uh, there's there's an example of that dynasty there. You know we we've seen it throughout NBA history where where great teams they have a run, and uh, Golden State has been that team. They've been the NBA Finals the last five years. We've been talking about them for even longer than that. And uh, they have hit a major, major skid. Uh, yes, exactly. And and just to kind of put a not too fine a point on your Mark Jackson piece, uh-huh. uh, totally true. He was not the guy to finish the job, right. but he set the tone expertly at the front. When he got named coach, I remember he went on ESPN and they said, what are you, any, like, any predictions you want to make about the team? Mm. He's like, the Golden State Warriors will be in the playoffs next year. And everyone was like, bah, ha, 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 come on. Because, like, the Warriors, there was a good chunk of time where I forgot they were an NBA franchise. Yeah. I, com- like, completely forgot them. And I, I don't think I was alone in that. But Mark Jackson took over, convinced Andre Iguodala to come to Golden State and to continue to sign there. Uh, after they did, they made a huge improvement on the team. This is still when Steph is like, just like a person that thought that everyone kind of thought got drafted too high because he had bad ankles and they were able to like kind of pull, like start to piece this identity together that then Steve Kerr kind of like picked up on and was able to refine even further. But like you had that initial, like, this is our belief system. This is what we're doing. And that has continued through and kind of blossomed into this analytic darling this is the future of basketball and now there's nothing worse than watching something uh fall apart like this and it's just it's tragedy after tragedy after basketball tragedy out in in uh in san francisco right now yeah in a brand new arena and steph curry may used to maybe used to have the bad ankles but now he's got the bad hand that's going to keep him down for a little while, I mean, we're not talking about the whole season or even half the season, but we're talking about this team perhaps digging a hole that they can't get out of. And it made me think, P, you know, what about what made us think? Is it just Curry's greatness? Is it just the fact that there's been, um, you know, it's been such a solid program there for a half a dozen years or more now that made us think that a team like that could weather the storm of losing not only you know, a Hall of Fame superstar level player of Kevin Durant, you know, maybe might finish up his career in the top 10 or 20 all time in that discussion, uh, but also Clay Thompson. And it made me think about, you know, other teams, you know, that have been in the finals and, 
you know, you don't automatically assume that the Cavs could lose LeBron. I mean, that was LeBron left and there was nothing left there. Uh, the Heat after LeBron left in 2015, they had Dwayne Wade, but Dwayne Wade was old. Chris Bosh, unfortunately for him, ran into you know the end of his career with that whole blood clot thing. Um, nobody expected the Heat to be on the level that people were placing the Warriors on this year. The Shaq and Kobe Lakers, when Shaq got traded for Karan Butler and Lamar Odom, said, all right, well, the Lakers are going to take a step back, and they did. It just There's countless examples over the years where you lose that A-level player, and it's just like, all right, well, now we need to take a dose of reality here. I don't think anybody thought Golden State was winning the title this year, but I thought a lot of people still believed they'd be in the top half of the Western Conference, and that is obviously not happening. Yeah, count me among those people at the end of last season, but or when um, you know, kind of even after just Clay went down. Yeah, it was like, well, Clay's going to come back and and they'll be fine. They've got enough pieces where people are going to elevate. But brought in D'Lo Re- Russell. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, the Warriors were still doing Warrior things, but there's not too many teams that can just weather the the type of storm that they're actually attempting to weather right now. I mean. I think the other thing that comes down to it is that, like you said, there are all those teams that the expectation wasn't there, so they were to still play and not have this weight of expectation hanging over them sure. every single time they laced up. But I'm going to throw this little caveat at you, at you as well, Sean. I remember watching a video, like a video interview of Jordan after he won one of the titles and just saying, essentially saying how it's like, this is the greatest basketball team of all time. There's never been a team that's been this dominant because of the amount of parity in the league. There's never been a team this good with this amount of parity. Right? Mm-hmm. And that was in the mid-90s, and there's some validity to that. But also, yeah. there's how can you have parity when you've got Jordan, Pippen, the man in the middle, Luke Longley, <laughs> and like, like John Paxson, Steve Kerr. You've got... Um, Kukoc. Kukoc. Just an unbelievable team around you. That, so parity doesn't really come into play. You have everyone executing on their job uh, expertly and the greatest of all time at the head of the phalanx. So that's not even like the parity discussion at that point doesn't make any doesn't make any sense. It didn't then. It doesn't now. The reason why I'm bringing this up is we're living in an age now where every single team is also making that comparison to themselves, mm-hmm. where if you think of. So, of course, the expectation is inflated because everyone thinks that every, everyone, every single player in the NBA thinks no one believes in us. Every single team has that. Yeah. So when by saying that, if no one believes in us, we're going to do X, we're going to do Y, we're going to do Z, we're going to be able to overachieve against these things. And it's, that's just kind of in the air. And all the fan bases are saying it too. And then everyone's saying it on social media. It's just in the air all the time. What it's doing, it's not pumping your players up. It's rising them up. Like off the ground. So now when they when something falls or doesn't go their way, it hurts all that much more when they hit the ground. Mm. So I think that's kind of what we're dealing with with the Warriors. Now, granted, you have Steph Curry who just broke his hand. You have Clay Thompson who tore his ACL. You have um, Kevin Durant who also massive injury and left the team. And you have Draymond Green who's all banged up. You also have Willie Cauley-Stein who's hurt. You have Kevon Looney who's hurt. Like this, this team has just been absolutely decimated. 
Like so, it'd be different if it was just one guy falling, or Durant left, and they were a bit of backfill, or you were able to kind of give some of those responsibilities to some of the guys on the bench, and they're able to still maybe pull off like the three or four seed because they're still the Warriors and the blueprint is still there. But honestly, what team could possibly survive this? Yeah, and at this point, it kind of makes you wonder about how Golden State is going to handle it because you know. Steph Curry is advancing in age, but he's one of the greatest players of all time by any measure. And, you know, even if his his skills are uh, eroding, perhaps, I mean, he's still a deadly three-point shooter for you. And, you know, Draymond Green can still do Draymond Green things. Klay Thompson, a little bit younger. Um, if he can get back to, you know, 80% of what he was, he's still a very effective two-way player. And you have other talent on this team. Their, their bench is not very good, but you know, you're not going to have that this year. So this kind of brings up to me like a 96, 97 Spurs type situation. It's like, do you just sit David Robinson out and say, all right, we have, you know, we have Avery Johnson, we have Sean Elliott, we have all these other talented players, but what we're going to do is we're just going to sit this guy out. We're going to wait a year. We're going to get a top draft pick. Maybe it's not a Tim Duncan level of a splash, that's you know one of the most sure thing draft picks that there's been in the last 30 years of the NBA was Tim Duncan, but I'd, I'd have to say probably with like LeBron and I can't even think of who else. But then you go back and you, and you go at it next year in that new building and you try and coax another you know three four five years out of this Golden State unit. I mean, wouldn't you? Well, yes, but you also have to play to the fact that, you know, you have a brand new building with all these luxury boxes and, and people who've paid a lot of money for the privilege to sit in it and they'd be watching if they sink to San Antonio depths. I think, what was that, like a 15-win team that year? So uh, that's that's a tricky sort of spot that they put themselves in. I mean, good for them that they even rose to that spot after, you know, what was the best moment of Warriors basketball before Steph Curry? I know they won a championship in 1975 and they had run TMC uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, but uh, there there were a lot of lean years there. You know, the We Believe Warriors, maybe? The We Believe Warriors. Uh, Chris was... Mullen on the cover of Sports Illustrated Kids. I don't know. I mean, that's that's the era I'm talking about where I'm like, With oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the period I'm talking about. I'm like, I totally forgot they're even a basketball team. I thought they were relegated. I mean, you want to talk about, like, a team that would have benefited from league pass. Oh yeah, is the Golden State Warriors of that era? Their popularity would have been through the roof, even if the fact is that they, you know, they never had the eventual success uh, under Don Nelson. And yeah, a lot of talent passed through there too. Chris Webber, Spreewell, Spreewell, I mean, good lord. So. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting what happens. I, I mean, if I'm the Warriors, I think maybe four games in is a little early to kind of call it quits. Sure. But I wouldn't worry too much about the Lakeups and the ownership group making their money back on the Chase Bank Arena because they're going to make their money on, like, you know, Taylor Swift is going to do a concert there. They're just going to rotate that through from the entertainment aspect. Going to retire and, a number? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think Silicon Valley has the money to spend. I wouldn't uh, spill too many tears over uh, over the people who can afford boxes in uh, in San Francisco. I lived there for a little while. I could barely afford milk, so <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's. Uh, I don't. I'm not too worried about about what's going to happen on, on the bay. Trust me, they're not my tears, but I do wonder about how ownership would respond to a bunch of uh, Silicon Valley types with uh, pitchforks showing up at the door. <laughs> I mean, uh, give me all the give me all the rich boy tears, and I will sail to Banner eighteen on them. Thank you. <laughs> so, P, shifting gears, 
you know, I don't want to get particularly, I mean, this is our podcast. We own this. I was so gassed out on last year's Celtics. I was so gassed out on Kyrie Irving, and I was psyched to see him get out of town. But the stuff that's coming up this week just brings it around again. And I think that more than just Kyrie Irving, there's, there's kind of a larger discussion uh, that can happen here uh, with regard to some of the stuff that's creeping out of Brooklyn where they've started the season one and three under the quote-unquote leadership of their new point guard. Yeah, I think um, I, I read the story that you're talking about, and it's a really interesting point that you bring up, the whole Kyrie paradox, shall we say. This is a guy that kind of leaves a lot of teams and fans and takes in his wake no matter where he goes. And earlier this week, Jackie McMullen from ESPN put out a great story about how the 2019-2020 Nets came together. It started after the Rio Olympics. Yeah, DeAndre Jordan, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving kind of kicking back and enjoying some time together after they won the gold medal in Rio. And just kind of thinking about how, like, this brotherhood, this is something we'd want to invest in. That's at least the veneer of the story they're putting out there, right? Like, it's just three friends making the league work for them, yep. following in the footsteps of the Miami Heat, the, the Heatles with LeBron and Bosh and Wade back in the uh, in the late early aughts and I think every team kind of tried to follow in those footsteps and kind of create their own big three and this is the first time well I mean I guess if you want to call DeAndre Jordan put him yeah I mean that's a three but that's a generous generous very generous retail Paul Pierce Paul Pierce to his credit um Paul Pierce did take a rocket ship uh, to see uh, DeAndre Jordan a number of years oh, ago with a, a crude, crude clip art. It's my Twitter. favorite day in the history of NBA. <laughs> it was was the hunt for DeAndre Jordan. That was just that's the day the NBA the NBA Twitter was born. Honestly, so bizarre, so bizarre. Yeah, the the fo- the like the screen grab of a rocket ship emoji posted on Twitter by my man, the Truth. Just amazing. But I think the, uh, the the meat of the story was that it's about how this team came together and kind of how they were going to graft it onto this scrappy team that's also looking to rebuild under the direction of a idealistic, young, exciting coach in a new system, fresh start, and how now they put all the pieces together. It's their own ex- expedited version of the process. You've got Durant, Kyrie, and Jordan in there. Um, mm-hmm. About three-quarters of the way through the story, Jackie McMullen kind of shifts to talk a little bit about Kyrie and the influence he's having on the team already. And it brought up that some of his like classic mood swings about the effect they're having on the team already. And just kind of positing out there that it's like this is something else they're going to have to get used to. That was not the point of the story, but it was the headline. And yeah. that got everybody going. And I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on what it is you think about is this – Fair and warranted criticism for a guy like Kyrie, or is it sour grapes on behalf of everyone who's rooting for a star to fall, which honestly is an NFL thing that's been grafted onto the NBA? Yeah, well, it's tough to you know, really separate yourself in any evaluation of Kyrie Irving from the fact that we are Celtics fans making that evaluation. Enjoy, it's- Nets fans. <laughs> <laughs> just save that, save that tweet as a draft and just send it out every day. That 60% of my tweets this season is either I hope the Celtics win this game or enjoy Nets fans. <laughs> well, NBA, you know, NBA teams, they're, they're defined by their league guys. That's, 
the way it's it's always been and and you kind of mentioned it you know you watch NBA on NBC back in the day and it was you know Barkley and the Sixers or Barkley and the Suns take on Dominique Wilkins and the Hawks or you know whatever it was always always the lead guy that continues to be the NBA's marketing plan even as the league morphs into a, an era of uh, well, trios, as we saw with that that big three era that the Celtics, Heat, and a variety of other teams tried, and now we have the dynamic duos. But the fact is, not everybody can have a dynamic duo, so every team is going to be defined by their lead guy, even if it was last year with the Hornets and Kemba Walker. Uh, now the Hornets looking for a new identity there. The Nets, they are just going to be Kyrie Irving's team, at least for this year, at least until KD comes back. So the Nets go from plucky, I kind of like them, uh, underdogs with a smart, you know, energetic new coach to kind of an insincere, very talented shit show, which is what defines Kyrie Irving's NBA existence at this point. Sure, he hit the big shot in the 2016 NBA Finals to win that series for Cleveland, but he was LeBron's sidecar. I mean, he was never anything but that, and the one time that he has had to take a leadership role in Boston, it didn't end very well. Um, there's a lot of stuff tied up in this. You know, People are bringing up mental health, and, and that's definitely something that you know I've been getting my head around more as an NBA fan over the years. We're seeing it come up more and more. Um, I think the, the Royce White thing that happened, you know, the player that was drafted, but uh, had some mental health issues, had a you know fear of flying and a variety of other things. That was kind of like the the patient zero for you know the NBA and and you know having a respect for mental health. Uh, you've seen it with uh, I think uh, Kevin Love opened up about it. I believe Kyle Lowry opened up about it as well. And the thing with with Kyrie Irving though is we're not going to play dime store psychologists here on this podcast on Kyrie Irving's mental health, but it's it's just the the sheer bravado of this guy, you know, he really wants you to think that he is something that he's clearly not. So the real Kyrie Irving is is just a mystery to people. Like, we don't really know what he is. All we can get is what we're being told by sources and reports, by journalists, and what we're being told by teammates. Right. And the teammates don't want to upset the apple cart. They don't want Kyrie Irving mad at them. They don't want to not be able to gain entree to the superstar fraternity that Kyrie is in by his God-given talent. So they watch their words as well. And what we have is two completely different pictures of Kyrie Irving, this talented, complex NBA superstar as a person and as a leader, and what you can really believe about him. Is he just this you know, moody guy who's kind of a dick? Or is he, you know, this great teammate who's just a little bit misunderstood? And that's where we are with this whole situation. I think you touched on something really important, Sean. And it's that it's not that it's not this is not no one's mad at Kyrie. I want to put it out there for being Kyrie. Like, I don't disagree. He can do whatever he wants. He's making decisions like it. And he's doing what is best for him as he understands it in the moment which is awesome. That's all you can ever want for any person to be able to have that freedom to make decisions, to make the decisions that's best for them. I think the issue is, is the box that people are trying to put Kyrie Irving in. Does he seem like a handful? Yeah, he does. And like I convinced myself, I fell for it hook, line and sinker 
down the line, I'm like, he's going to resign. He's going to resign. Why would you turn? Why would you leave a good situation? You can dictate the future for this team. And it's like we believe in the talent and Boston can build around it. Like you want to play basketball and you want to win and play for a professional organization. That's what you're saying. That's Boston. Everything you described, that's Boston. That's not what you wanted though, Kyrie, because it seems like what he wants is to be able to do like he just wants to be able to figure it out. He's 26. Of course, I wanted to figure it out at 26. I'd love to figure it out now. Mm. But like I think so you it's kind of hard to separate Kyrie the superstar or like the the putting on the cape to be Superman when you're yeah. clearly a Batman. Batman yeah. is moody. Batman does his own thing. Batman doesn't want to work like within the system of the Justice League. That's a Superman thing. We don't need Kyrie to be Superman, so maybe the NBA should just take the cape off his shoulders. I like that analogy right there, and, it, and it's not it, one of the things that I was kind of trying to dig into is if he's not a Superman, then does he have to be like Superman's sidekick? I guess the the proper analogy, you know, right. the to the the world that you're delving into would be if he's not Batman, does he have to be Robin? No, he's just a he's just a different frame of superhero. And the, and the thing is, he's I mean, an antihero. The, yeah, he's, he's an antihero. Rorschach is who he is. He's an antihero. He's the, he. That's what Kyrie is, and that's totally fine. That's kind of the era of um, superstar or superhero dumb that we're in now, anyway. He's the Joker. Let's be honest. But yeah. I think he. But like Kyrie believes, it's almost like basketball nihilism. It's like none of it really matters. Like it just is what it is, and that's totally fine. And I think that's the problem that people kind of like. That that's the issue with. With Kyrie is that you want him to be a certain thing that he just clearly is not. He knows right. it, but he's trying to be like – even the way he answers questions, he's trying to appease the person that's asking them. It doesn't make any yeah. sense, but that it is what it is. you know. And like I think the sooner people are like, hey, man, that's just not – it's just Kyrie being Kyrie as an excuse. Like a lot of the people that were reached out for comment in the Jackie Mack story, that's yeah. not being made up. She asked questions and people told her freely what they thought. She's reporting. There's no bias in this article. Like the headline's a little biased and maybe like we want to grab some bias onto it because mm-hmm. Jackie Max, a Boston, a Boston-based reporter and we're Boston-based fans. So of course it's a little shot in Freud where we're like just want to see it implode like it did here in Boston and make Kyrie quote unquote pay for not re-signing here. But ultimately, it's like, yeah, Kyrie, that's, that's, that's exactly what Kyrie is, and best of luck to you in the Nets. You go do what you want to do. We're going to do what we want to do. I don't have any ill will against Kyrie. I kind of like wish I trusted my gut back at the season ticket holders event when he said the way he phrased it was so classic, and I had this little thing in my ear chirping for the whole year that this is bullshit. And, the, and he said, if you guys will have me back, I plan on re-signing here. So what did he do every day from then, Sean? He made it impossible for us to want him to have him back. Yeah. And that's not – it wasn't like he's like, this is my art installation where he's just planning it out. Like this is how you destroy or demoralize a fan base. It's just the immense pressure that it comes down. It does just – life just doesn't always work out that way and that's fine. So best of luck in Brooklyn and uh, kick rocks down the road. I'll see you in the <laughs> Eastern Conference Finals. Hey, I appreciate you taking the high road with some of that. I, I mean, I, I just, I guess I would, I would be able to let it go a little bit easier if I could just, and maybe I'm, I'm not meant to understand 
this particular player, but you know, he's he's Uncle Drew on the one hand and he's, you know, as you describe him, Batman on the other. He's he's a guy who takes such pains to try and explain himself all the time, but at the same time, like can't explain himself and, and says and says that it's not his responsibility to explain himself to fans, which is which is what he said when he was, you know, approached on the McMullen article. He dropped some some gems of quotes. Another another root of how men struggle is dealing with other people's perceptions. I believe that. I mean, hey, I I I'm not ashamed to admit it, man. I mean, like, you know, everyone it, it's I am fascinated by all this stuff and trying to understand my own mind. And like, I totally yeah. agree with like, hey, man, it ain't easy being a, being a guy when men are villains. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not easy trying to prove yourself to be a good guy when the assumption is that, like, maybe you're not that good. That's tough. Yeah. But that's also how it is. That's just life. And you just got to kind of deal with that. And you're in this position, though. Because you have this immense talent, which affords you, uh, you know, so much money in the in the adulation of millions of fans, and you can bring a documentary film crew to watch you go home to Brooklyn or wherever. A lot of the confusion arises out of the access, and it, we've let the pers- like the day to day perception of who Kyrie is as a person kind of s- sully and bleed into his legacy as a as a talent. We didn't have this with Jordan. I mean, Jordan was a degenerate, but we didn't really know about that all that much um, during the right. time that he was playing. It, it just wasn't – and even if it was known about and it was written about, the average fan didn't have access uh, to the information. It wasn't pounded into their brains. You know, uh, Magic Johnson's sex life wasn't pounded into our brains. But by golly, if Jordan and Magic were playing nowadays, that sort of stuff would be – just pounded into us. It's it's got to be really hard to be in that position as an athlete, and it's and it's good in a way because you know you have access to the fans and they have it to you. But there's also immense pressure because the the lights is never off, and you can invite it a little bit, and you give an inch, and people want to take a mile, and that's really kind of the, the spot that Kyrie is in right here. People want to get close to him, and he'll let him a little bit, but he'll never truly let him get that close. I think he, Kyrie's whole thing is, I'm going to let you see the version of me I want you to see. Yep. And the minute you try to peek behind the curtain, you're like, yeah, but what's that? And he's like, that's not for you to look at. Yeah. And it's, but you're still wearing the cape, dude. You know, I mean, like, that's the thing where it's like, I don't think anyone would, I don't think if Kyrie came out and said, look, man, like, this is, I, I play basketball, that's my job. I'm a person and you don't get all of me. That's just not how it's going to go. Then everyone be like, okay, that's the that that's we understand that to be that. That's what Kevin Durant does. Kevin yep. Durant speaks for himself. So when Kevin Durant's like, I didn't talk to you, I'm kind of paraphrasing Stephen A. Smith earlier this right. week and speaking right. on this topic, but he was like, Kevin Durant, well, he talks to everyone. He doesn't have anyone who he talks through. So there's no misconception. So when he says, I didn't say that, you can be sure that he didn't. Kyrie, I don't think, is quite there yet. I think he wishes he was, and he feels like he is, but that's just not the tone that's been set with Kyrie. And it's just, it's a real bummer, because I think people want to anoint Kyrie as something different than what he truly wants to be. And I don't think he necessarily wants to be understood. I think he just wants to play basketball. And uh, But he doesn't, but you put a microphone in, in his face, 
and a lot of other stuff comes out and that yes. just gets scrutinized to death. And it's kind of fun for us because, hey, it's not our problem anymore. <laughs> I don't have to worry about it. And, like, we can just kind of focus on the Celtics being fitting into the box we want the Celtics to fit into, which is a scrappy up-and-coming team led by Jason Tatum, who, as far as we're concerned, is only 19 years old for the fourth <laughs> year in a row. <laughs> well, that's the box that we want him to fit into, Patrick. But we right. just talked about how the Nets' identity was changed by the inclusion of Irving into that system. Um you know, like, honest I, I, to God, you yeah. dropped, like, all right, imagine the NBA and every team is a fish tank. Yeah. All right? And the Nets, you got a lot of um, goldfish in the fish tank. Uh-huh. All right? They all fit together nicely. It's great. And then you drop in a couple beta fish, Durant, Jordan, Irving, who are doing something completely different. It's a new... It's a new creature in the ecosystem, and it's going to have to change. Well, Patrick, as, a, as an aquarist for many years, I will tell you that betta fish do fight each other. Oh, yeah, Sean. There's a reason why I picked that breed. <laughs> so what's the Celtics fish tank look like right now? Because I'm not sure who the lead fish is, what the identity of that fish tank is. I mean, again, as an aquarist for many years... You, you had different fish that were "quote unquote" community fish, meaning they would you know, basically live with everybody. You had your semi-aggressive fish. You had your aggressive fish that you just couldn't put with anybody. I mean, are the Celtics really a group of community fish where you know they still can coexist despite the fact that there's a potential for some flashy plumage and potential rivalries? I wish I knew more about fish. <laughs> to keep this analogy going, I think That's as okay. far as as far as an ecosystem goes, I think the Celtics honestly they just hit the reset button, and they they kept some people around, but they they figured out what was the piece that didn't fit, and it worked itself out. And they're like, all right, see you later. And the pieces they have, they have now reset. They're rebuilding the fish tank. All right, so we here. All right, all right, all right I got it. I got it. Here we go. So you drop in a different type of element. It shatters the fish tank. Shatters. God, There's bits everywhere. Glass. I'm running rocks. all over the place trying to catch these, pick these fish up off the f- carpet. And the fish you were able to pick up, you put into a different size bowl. They get right back to work doing what they do best. Okay. So now you've got different elements, and you have the chance to look at okay, what was the factor that caused the crack in the foundation? What was it that caused my little diving suit man to end up under the coffee table? You can take a look at all of these things of like what the problem was, and you've now added pieces into the new fish tank that are going to drive better with the fish you want to keep. Diving suit man was definitely Gershon Yabuselli. 100%. Best of luck wherever you are, Gershon. The Nanjing uh, monkey cats, something monkey fish? I forget what it is. Uh, oh, man. I, I, wrote, I wrote a Celtics notebook for uh, uh, the dot-com. 98.5thesportsub.com, and uh, I mentioned Gershon's place that he landed in. Um, but, yeah, he's gone. And, and speaking of the hub, too, Adam Jones is on Thursday night, and he was talking about something that I found rather interesting is, okay, everybody says that you know swapping out Kyrie was the big change, but you know particularly after a night where you beat the Bucks a team where your success against the Bucks was often credited to a certain favorite player of mine, Al Horford. Mm-hmm. Um, you beat the Bucks without Al Horford. What does that say 
about Al Horford's role and how much you quote unquote miss him. I think it's going to be a big thing over the season. I don't think they can sustain this level of play uh, without, you know, an impact big man. Who knows how long Ennis Cantor is going to be out. And even if he's in the lineup, if he's a guy that they can trust for 25 minutes a night. Um, yeah, man. But, it, but it's, it's interesting. Horford, Morris, Irving, kind of the three big principals who departed Boston last year and the different ways that they impacted that fish tank and the ways that they're uh, not impacting it now that they're gone. Yeah, I think it's like it's a big reset button for for the Celtics as a whole. We touched on it last week with the re-signing of Jalen Brown, where the, the like kind of the the word on the Celtics, at least that came out, and guys like Brian Windhorst love to bring it up even months and years after the fact, is that like Boston doesn't stand by its guys. Mm. That was kind of the rap, right? I mean, like yeah. they because they did Isaiah Thomas dirty. So why wouldn't they do it to someone else? Why wouldn't they keep it's an doing easy narrative? This? See, it's very easy, and it's like, yeah, if Carl Anthony Towns becomes available, believe me, everyone's going to be thrown into that trade to try to go. That's the line on Trader Danny, whether it's true or not, right? So I think the interesting part for the Celtics is how do you reset that narrative, and how do you – so they've – I think re-signing Jalen Brown is a sign where it's like, hey, we're going to stick by our guys regardless. We're going to – and it's we're just going to make it work. That's a big message both to the team they have and the team they eventually want to build. Um, do they need someone in the middle or someone to solidify? Yeah, they do. I don't think they can sustain this level of play. I'm not, tech, I'm not really sure that what we saw against the Bucs is what we're going to see every night. But what right. I did see was the chance for Jason Tatum to emerge, to be the type of player that he ultimately could be all the time. He didn't have any running buddies last night, truly. Like, he was a guy that just was like, here we go. Paul Pierce is here, like, sitting courtside with Wick. Tomorrow's Halloween. I got to take Deuce out trick-or-treating. We got to get work done tonight. And he did. And maybe that's the kind of guy where it's like the maybe we're looking at the beginning of a new mold for the Celtics. Yes, defensive-minded, but not everything funneling towards the middle or the perimeter. And maybe this is just like, maybe this will be a big directional change for the team as a whole. Do they always need another piece? Yes, because everyone always needs another piece. I don't know what that piece is. And I think just by investing in what you have, as opposed to looking for what's next, is what the Celtics are going to have to do to survive, thrive, and swim in a fishbowl the size of the NBA this season. Well done, Mr. O'Connor. I mean... I don't know how, you know, last night, it's, you know, the fourth game of the season, it's still October, uh, how that translates to a seven-game series in the playoffs against the Bucks. I do know that, you know, that, and there's a guy for SB Nation, I forget his name, uh, but he, he kind of talked about, you know, what the Celtics' recipe for success was last night. It's, it's basically like this is a team where you're going to see a lot of Jekyll and Hyde nights because they depend so much on their jump shooting. But who are their jump shooters? Uh, you know, they're, they're – Four guys who have the potential to be, in their own right, elite perimeter players. And, uh, you know, Tatum, Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, and Gordon Hayward. But, yes, you're right. Last night you saw that elite performance stemmed from Tatum, and it was infectious down throughout the rest of the team. Now, granted, they had a little help from Marcus Smart because when those other guys weren't cooking – Marcus Smart was keeping the stove at least lukewarm. Oh yeah, and and that's that's the way that a non-elite, you know, role player in this league can affect things, and that's the way that they have under Brad Stevens' system through the years. Whether it's Evan Turner, now Smart, you know, there have been numerous examples of that. 
I would say, I mean, you come to Boston, you get a career. You know, you put yeah. two years into work with the Celtics and you get a massive contract. I mean, you see that time and time and time again. Evan Turner, Marcus Morris. I mean, Aaron Baines didn't get like a huge contract from the Suns, but look at the, the year he's having down there. He's making an impact. Starting. I mean, the, yeah, the Boston influence is real. I mean, I think you can... That's just how it goes. I mean, and I think that's a that's a really good thing that I wish we had more of in Boston. I wish that was kind of the party line on the seas, not just a regional one. But that I think they have the chance to kind of like build that into the DNA. But now they're just going to turn it all inward, and we're going to do that for our guys here. I've not seen that a lot out of Poirier yet. Would love to. Maybe he's the secret sauce. Daniel Maybe. Tice, I like, is emerging now that he's got a little room to cook. Um, so that could be good. Robert Williams is is... I mean, it's, he's leading the block party every single night. I like that. They were, but. They were plus 11 with him on the court, too. I mean, yeah. he's, he's definitely going to give up some possession just by being overzealous, but uh, there's so many different ways that he can impact the game if he can just develop that consistency. There's a guy you want to look at. So, yeah, I agree. The, the turning it inward, I want to continue to watch for that with some of these matchups that are coming up. I mean, you can't derive anything from a Celtics-Knicks matchup on a Friday night necessarily. I mean just that's, a victory, I hope. Yeah, yeah, you you hope so. I mean I, I was like, hey honey, we could we could catch up on some T V on Friday night because I don't have to be on the edge of my seat for the Celtics Knicks game. But then right. again, who knows? I might get a little alert on my phone midway through from you or from somebody else that say, hey, this is a situation that I need to monitor because here's you never know. The, here's the situation. Marcus Morris is having a revenge game. <laughs> Frankie Certainly Nicotine. possible. That's right. Frankie Smokes is uh, he's, he's coming back to prove dominance over Team USA again. Oh, man. Well, I guess maybe I will have to watch that game. Sorry, honey. The, uh, the long-awaited episode of This Is Us, which we put <laughs> off for several nights, we're going to have to put it off another night. The mass singer is going to have to wait. I need to see. <laughs> I need to see the Celtics game. So we're going to keep an eye on all those little pieces to our beloved Celtics season. We're going to keep an eye on Kyrie and the Nets and see if they can climb out of the hole they dug for themselves. We're going to keep an eye on the Sacramento Kings, on the Golden State Warriors, and we'll come back and kind of recenter ourselves at the beginning of or at the end of each NBA week. Uh, at least that that's the pattern that we continue on with this Knuckle Push-Ups podcast here at P. I actually got a little challenge for you this week, Sean, that I'd okay. like to throw out for next week. I'd like to give each other a little trick-or-treat present hmm. for uh, for next week. I'd like uh, for you to give me a League Pass team to follow for the week, and I'll do the same for you. Ooh. I haven't been following them enough. I want to figure out if this if this Suns team is real. Okay. And I understand that DeAndre Ayton is not currently a part of that team. That's correct. But I, I want to figure out what the, the – I want you to tell me what the engine is there for the Phoenix Suns. And if that engine completely blows out and they lose all their upcoming games, then tell me about that. All right. And I'd like – for you, Sean, I'd like for you to see if it's all smoke or if there's actually fire keeping everyone warm out in the plains of Minnesota. All I right. See, I'd like for you to check out a couple Wolves games – See, uh, see what's going on out there, and if Cat's going to make the jump, or uh, if Wiggins is really the number one hundred, right, for the top one hundred in the NBA. And that's probably right about where he should be. Right. So let's see if that's uh, let's see if that's true. Let's see what's cooking out there, and maybe we'll have a little more fun with this in the future once we really kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, and I hand you a week's worth of Chicago's Bulls games. Chris Dunn, let's go, baby. 
All right, Pete, we got our assignments. It's nice chopping it up with you here on the Knuckle Push-Ups podcast. We will get back together again, talk about these things and more. You can check us out on Spreaker. I'm going to get this all set up so it'll be going over to iTunes and all your favorite podcasting tools. But until then, I hope you have a fine weekend. Bye. Bye.